0: Oh, and welcome to Spy Hearts Podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Scott, Peter recommended you.
1: It was a, it was a bad choice. <laughs> I agree. I am not agreeing with what Peter recommended at all at this very moment. Pete is getting a one-star
0: recommendation. His Yelp reviews are about to take a downturn, if you know what I mean. Stay stay clear of Cam's Google reviews, folks. They are lethal. <laughs> I'm an assassin with a, t- with a keyboard. <laughs> yeah. Only there, though. He wants the protection of the screen, of course. I was about to say typewriter, and that is just so sad. <laughs> That's so you, though, isn't it? Like, it's uh, clickety-clackety the typewriter. That's, uh, you know. Well, I'm glad you graduated to typewriter. I know. I'm like Tom Hanks, though. I collect typewriters. Oh yeah, he does do that, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. Yeah, that's a loves fun. Loves one. James Bond movies and collects typewriters. So me and Tom, eye to eye. I, I've always said you and Tom Hanks should be best buddies. I know. Boozum buddies. B- Boozum. <laughs> he was on that TV show for years. No, but it's like, wait, am I pronouncing it right? Bo- I don't know. Maybe bosom. I'm pronouncing it wrong. Who knows? No, you're right. Bosom. It's well. It's yeah. I would say yeah. bosom, and you, 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 you pronounced the o more bosom. Yeah, I think I said it wrong. I think you're right. Yeah. Well, that's often the case. But uh, is it bosom? Is it bosom? Let us know, folks. What? Uh, <laughs> everyone needs a bosom for a pillow. <laughs> that's right. Uh, well, we are back with another episode. As per, but before we get to that, we need to induct another member of the uh, secretive and elusive spy hards die Hard circle so how do you become a spy hards die Hard, cam well you leave a review for us on apple Podcasts, giving us a
1: five-star review and telling us what you like about the show or what you even love about the show
0: and then we read it on air and you are inducted into the spy hards die hards yeah, we don't edit these folks they are going in as you write them and this week's five-star review comes from mr Vinny h007 and he writes excellent podcast these guys are terrific always a fun time listening to them as they venture into the spy genre truly a shining example of one hell of a podcast would recommend this podcast to everyone happy to call these guys friends very nice very nice thank you so much Vinny. and
1: this week i'm gonna start a new trend Oh. With these spy hards, diehards, is like, oh, this is like supposed to be like kind of a podcast spy agency, right? Sure. Okay. So we are going to start assigning code names. Oh. And so this applies to everyone in the past. Everyone who's confused about what their code name might be, who's been read on the air, I'm going to answer that right now. Mm. Your code name is the name of the movie we are tackling that very week. Oh. And so Vinny has a very <laughs> amusing
0: code name, but a great one nonetheless. I mean, to be fair, like, as a code name goes, if I was going to pull out a dossier on a potential agent and I saw this as their code name, I'd be pretty chuffed for them. Yeah. And so, like, the person who got, you
1: know, their review read on the Leon the Professional episode really gets to choose Leon or the Professional, or they can have both either way. But other ones, you know, recently,
0: Ghosted, that's not a bad code name. Agent Ghosted. Agent Ghosted. I'm, I'm not so sure with uh, Agent Cats and Dogs 2, <laughs> The Revenge of Kitty Galore. I would say they
1: either get Agent Kitty Galore or Agent Paws Unite. I, I think we all
0: know what they're picking. but uh, I, I think so. Yeah, I, I think that's a great way of doing it and giving everyone a lovely alias. A little bonus you get for becoming a SpyHards diehard, you get an official SpyHards alias too. Look at what we're giving out all these things. You mm-hmm. can put it on a name badge and wear it around town. It'd make you a bad secret agent if you did, but you'd be showing your colors loud and proud. So, Vinny, welcome to the SpyHards diehard. If you want to become a SpyHards diehard and get your own code name, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We will get notified and we will read them out on air write whatever you'd like in it as long as it's five stars and it's fun we'll read it out on the show but cam i think it's time to uh, not only share what Vinny's code name is but get to the film itself here we are cam it's time to talk about this week's film but what is the film
1: we are talking about 1967's the naked runner which is a hell of a code name there Vinny. and uh this movie stars frank sinatra and was directed by sydney j fury the director of the ipcris file
0: oh (laughs) (laughs) hello darkness my old friend (laughs) i could already feel a migraine coming on here we go Mm. okay no there's a it's an interesting film to look at and it's one of those ones that feels like it's um not lost to time because it's a 60s film like people know it exists and it's got a Yeah, it's got Frank Sinatra in it. People know who that guy is. So I'm looking forward to tackling it with you, Cam. But for those of you who haven't caught the film, and I will add, it's actually available on YouTube worldwide for free. So if you haven't seen the film yet and you want to check it out, you can go and grab a copy of The Naked Runner on YouTube right now. I'll see if I can put it up on our page as well. Yeah. Uh, And there'll be links in the show notes below.
1: Yes, there's some sort of distribution issue with The Naked Runner because it's uh, owned by Frank Sinatra's film company, and uh, it has quietly disappeared over the years. If you look it up on Letterboxd, I think it has so few views that it doesn't even have like a numerical average grade on it. It's got like some reviews on there, but that was something I don't think I've ever seen before for like a major release. So it's interesting how you can have a movie like this that I've known the the name of for a long time. Mm. I've heard of this film. And it is readily available on YouTube in multiple formats, widescreen or
0: close-cropped four-three format, but it doesn't seem like a lot of people have seen it. Interesting. Well, let's uh, let's get into that and maybe figure out why a little bit. But before we get there, here is your synopsis. And Cam, I have a uh, a warning sticker to put on this one. Is there a dot 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 more? There certainly is. <laughs> more nakedness. <laughs> unfortunately this uh, synopsis is actually more of a marathon than a run oh, okay okay uh, the naked runner they found the key to sam laker they wound it up good and tight and then they turned him loose <laughs> okay <laughs> that's 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 pretty cool i don't it's mind not that bad it's not bad but it's like really like selling something with a lot of energy <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, it's it's not certainly what the film is. I don't think there is a, a, a very tightly wound protagonist in this film, which we'll get to, but here is the rest of the synopsis. Sam Laker is an American industrialist working in Britain who has been awarded an International Award for Industrial Design. He is planning to travel to East Germany to attend a trade show and show off his invention, taking his 10-year-old son with him on holiday. Is his invention a chair? Yes, but he didn't invent the chair. No, but he designed the specific chair that he won the award for. I, I just it, it used the word invention. I'm just I'm taking it to whoever wrote this uh, synopsis. Sure, I mean, but it's like if you created the Lazy Boy, mm-hmm. you're the inventor of the Lazy Boy. It doesn't mean you invented chairs. You're right, Camp. You're right. But uh, here is the rest of it. Meanwhile, a British intelligence officer who served with Laker in the second world war decides to use the opportunity of Laker's trip and his lack of an intelligence profile to coerce dot 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 more oh him into carrying out an assassination that's a
1: real cheat of a dot 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 more but uh yeah i think that outlines the plot fairly well i mean it is at its core a very simple movie um it gets complicated in the telling but in mm-hmm. terms of what the specific goal of the movie is very basic and not really akin to the ipcris file which i think has much
0: more of a complex story it's trying to tell yeah th- I, in terms of the plot the chalk and cheese between the two it, it's not really a straight comparison between the ipcris file and the naked runner it's more just the people who created it are the same yeah
1: yeah and i would say like there are other elements that are very similar, but in terms
0: of plotting, they are quite different. Yeah, and I, well, we'll probably get into charting that a little bit, but um, as we both said at the top, we, it sounds like I certainly hadn't seen this film and you hadn't come across this one either. No, it was one that I definitely come across multiple times on
1: YouTube. I'm you know, every now and again, known for... I'm known for this <laughs> classic cam, uh, but... Uh, what a you know. cam thing to do. <laughs> maybe at like 11 o'clock at night on a night off or something, scrolling through YouTube for older movies that are just free on, you know, to watch. Oh, that cam. Yeah, yeah I've come across many things on there that I've watched and enjoyed, including the Frank Sinatra movie, Suddenly, uh, that I watched maybe like, a, I don't know, less than a year ago and actually quite enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Another assassination thriller, that is actually quite similar to this movie in a lot of ways. Did it come before or after this? Before. It was in the okay. 50s. Right, okay. Uh, and so, like, I had definitely seen The Naked Runner listed, and it was one where I was always like, I should watch that, because I've definitely heard of this movie, but mm. when I realized it was a spy thing, it just basically got added
0: to our master list, and I thought, okay, I'll get to it when I get to it. And I've, I've had it mentioned to us on social media before whenever I'm talking about the Ipqris file. Mm, yeah, people will bring this one up as sort of like a a comparison point, or like an American version of the of the film, mm-hmm. despite this being a mostly British production. Yes, right, yeah. Uh, but like, I other than that, I had nothing going into it. I'm a I'm a big Rat Pack fan. I'll add that bit of context. So the idea of talking about a Frank Sinatra film is quite fun from that perspective because we love a bit of Dean Martin on this show and Dean Martin is often referencing Frank Sinatra in the Matt Helm film. So it's nice to see uh, old uh, old blue eyes finally on the show. And as we are closing out 2023,
1: I think we kind of have to say that this was kind of the Rat Pack year for SpyHards, you know, covering so many of the Matt Helms within 2023, plus ending it, or pretty close to ending it with a Frank Sinatra Uh, vehicle you know going forward we'll have other entries from at least frank sinatra we'll do manchurian candidate one day Mm -hmm. um but we'll never have as heavy a rat pack year including actually oceans 11 on the patreon uh that we did this year as well so like this kind of was a
0: big year for that you know that famous gang on spy hearts that famous gang what what a what a talking up that is i'll put you on stage first to warm up the crowd Guys, we've got that famous gang coming out. Uh, let's, let's get some noise for those, those blokes. Yeah, them. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe a warm-up act is uh, not in Cam's future, but let's, uh, let's talk about how this runner took his clothes off.
1: <laughs> so uh, this movie was based on a 1965 novel by English writer Francis Clifford. Um, Who was a nudist. He was a famous nudist. That's what he's most famous for, not writing. Although he did write in the nude, also notably. Uh, but uh, he's someone who <laughs> he liked to <the> breeze, <laughs> and you can usually breeze through his novels pretty well too. So oh! it all connects. Um,
0: uh,
1: but uh, he was someone who wrote, you know, several novels, but didn't have a lot of um, a lot of his work adapted into Hollywood. There's really only three, and the other notable one was his novel Act of Mercy was adapted into the 1962 David Niven film Guns of Darkness uh which I've never seen and had never really heard of but this one uh follows that one and this is probably the most famous of his you know film adaptations
0: and this is his most famous of his film ad- adaptations
1: Yeah he just never really okay. had his Robert Ludlum yeah. Jason
0: Bourne you know Home Run kind of thing or Tom Clancy um yeah I mean just, book yeah. book fans out that you have to let us know if he's a particularly um big name in in literary circles cuz it's not one I've heard before.
1: Yeah, me neither. And the title The Naked Runner was actually taken from an uh, Arthur Simon's poem called In the Wood of Finvava and there's a line that says a naked runner lost in a storm of
0: spears. Like Britney and Jamie Lee. Or... <laughs> I suspect that's not what Arthur Simon's was going for. Oh, okay.
1: Sorry. Whoopsie daisy. Hmm. Yeah. Yes, and so the person brought in to adapt this novel into a screenplay was Stanley Mann, who was a Toronto-born writer who we've actually talked about in the past. Um, He wrote Eye of the Needle. Oh. And so that's kind of the connectivity there in terms of spy movies. Mm -hmm. But um, he got his start initially with a 1951 Canadian comedy film called The Butler's Night Off that was actually William Shatner's first ever film. Was he the butler? He was not the butler, unfortunately, no. He's Uh, like fourth or fifth
0: build in the movie. So this is 1950s, early 50s then? In 1951, yeah. Oh, wow. That's a a bright-eyed and
1: bushy-tailed Bill Shatner right there. Very young, yeah, early 20s. And so uh, he went on and just did like a whole bunch of TV. He did a 1959 Peter Sellers movie called The Mouse That Roared, Mm -hmm. a 1965 drama called Rapture, And that led right into this uh, film. And as I said, he would go on to do things like Eye of the Needle. He uh, had a writing credit on Meteor, a movie we tackled on the Patreon, the Sean Connery disaster Mm -hmm. movie. Really fun film. Yeah. Damien, Omen 2, and Firestarter, and also Conan the Destroyer.
0: That's the Schwarzenegger film? The second one, yes. The second one? Yeah, the one with Grace Jones, yeah. I do not remember there ever being a second one.
1: Not great. And, uh, I mean, he would not have had sole credit, I would imagine, on that film.
0: Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Not selling me on that one, but that's okay. No,
1: that's where they toned it down to a PG. Like, the first one's a real, like, R-rated, red-blooded kind of action
0: movie. And the second one was like, let's make it for kids. Okay. Yeah, not what you want from a Conan film. But please continue.
1: No. And so, the person who was most crucial, though, to really getting this movie made was actor-turned-producer Brad Dexter, And Brad Dexter, probably best known to many um, as appearing in the movie The Magnificent Seven as Harry Luck, one of the seven. And uh, he was someone who was working with Frank Sinatra in uh, in Hawaii on a movie called None But the Brave. And Frank Sinatra almost drowned. He was out in the ocean, got caught in a wave and in severe danger. Wow. And um, Brad Dexter went and actually saved his life and Frank Sinatra was just like, I'm indebted to you. How can I help you? He made him the executive of his film company and would do everything he could to help him out. And so, um, he's the reason ultimately that, uh, Frank Sinatra's in this movie. He was interested in this material and Frank Sinatra was like, okay, I'll do it for you. And so Frank Sinatra got a $1 million salary. And he was also coming off two big bombs, uh, Marriage on the Rocks and Assault on a Queen. So this was kind of a precarious time for him career-wise, at least
0: in film. I don't know about you, but if Frank Sinatra owed me a favor, I'm not sure I'd pull it in by saying, hey, I want to be in your next film. Well,
1: hmm. This was, I believe, Brad Dexter's first producer job on a major motion picture, Sure. So maybe it's like I, I want Frank there because that's gonna help
0: hopefully lead to a hit. Sure. Yeah, no, he's got the name value. You put his name on a poster, people will turn up in those days, I imagine. hmm. Uh I I don't know. I, I think I would I would call it in and just ask to do a stage show with him and Dean Martin. I guess. Although Brad Dexter, I don't know that he was much of a singer. <laughs> I'm putting myself in that position. Like what would I do? Oh, like okay. I could I could sing with, with uh Dean and, and, and Frank. Like I could I could put a show on. I'd love to just be up on stage with those two. That would be a memory for life. Oh no kidding. Right? Yeah. And um
1: Frank Sinatra was actually a fan of the Ipcrus file. And so he was never interested in working him. with Sydney <laughs> He was interested in working with Sydney J. Fury, who uh we tackled in the past, of course, with the Ipcris file, but Toronto born as well. Uh, he's a, obviously a director, who got his start with a 1957 spicy teen movie called A Dangerous Age. Mm. And I looked up A Dangerous Age, and the poster's amazing. And I'm just going to read the text from the poster. Forbidden. They had tasted life and love. No longer adolescents. Not yet adults. Young emotions
0: laid bare. That sounds provocative. Is there, like, uh, is there some <laughs> kissing on the poster? Oh, yes. Very
1: steamy-looking uh, kissing going on. It's totally following in the wake of like um, Rebel Without a Cause. Right. Where teenagers are a thing mm-hmm. that are now being acknowledged as a cultural force, and adults are scared of them. There's some real snuggle-huggling going on on that poster. Yes, and actually, um, James Bond regular Shane Rimmer is credited as appearing in that film. Not as one of the teens, though. <laughs> I was going to say, is his chest out on the poster? <laughs> hmm. Doesn't appear to be. okay. Um, But Sidney J. Fury, after that movie, did a whole handful of movies. None of them really struck gold until 1965's The Ipcris File, which obviously is very acclaimed. Made the knock list. We tackled it very early on in the run of the show. Mm-hmm. And this was his follow-up to a Western called The Appaloosa, which was his follow-up to The Ipcris File. So this was very shortly after Ipcris. And so you basically had Ipcris in 65, this in 67. And... He worked right till 2018. He did the Iron Eagle films, he did Superman 4,
0: and a lot of um, direct-to-video action later in his career. Wait, Sidney J. Fury did Superman 4? That's correct, yes. Wow. I mean, I know that was like a reclamation project with Canon, that was falling to pieces. I'm not sure I could blame it necessarily on him, but that film is a mess.
1: It's so weird to look at his career, because when I look at the Ipcris file, and I look at this movie... Mm there is such a specific style going on. Yeah. And then you look later in his career and it's a lot of kind of disposable comedies and a lot of direct-to-video action movies. And then obviously stuff like the Iron Eagles, which are kind of
0: trashy. As you said, like kind of canon film material. Well, like um, his last film is called Drive Me to Vegas and Mars. Yeah. I'm not even sure what that is. I have no idea. All right uh yeah i'm just looking for his last sort of 20 30 years it's just a lot of what i would call straight to dvd it feels like it's straight to dvd
1: yeah and i mean mm. i was actually shocked to find out he was still alive
0: i yeah. didn't realize he was because
1: i just think director on the ipcris file there's no way but he's still around
0: so what you're saying is i should send him an email if he'll answer <laughs> i'll I'll send the email we'll see how it goes sure 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 mm. And he brought
1: along with him into this project Ipcress File cinematographer Otto Heller, who's a very acclaimed cinematographer, and you can see how the style's carrying between the two. There's a lot of continuity visually.
0: Well, that's that's the point I was going to make then, because you know Superman Four doesn't look like the Ipcress File. No, but this does. Yes, there's a there's a definite attempt to keep the style the same between those two films. I'm so I'm guessing that was probably more the combination of uh the cinematographer and Sidney j fury i think it was like the two of them working together
1: and when you're looking i think at that 1960s spy movie landscape Mm -hmm. they are trying to do something different the ipcris file stood out for a reason i think they're trying to put their own unique stamp on the genre in what i would imagine would be a very crowded marketplace
0: well this is 67 this is the same year as casino royale you're gonna live twice which is actually bonkers when you think about it i know right and I think there's also um at least
1: one Mad Helm film, maybe two. Is this the year where this two or is that sixty six? Maybe sixty six. Mm. It may have had Murderer's Row and
0: um the first one out. because yeah, it was 66, wasn't it? That was the that was the pun. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. But yeah, like, this is I think there was a Flint film out around now as well. Like this is it's all going on this year. This I think Yeah. I think we looked at it once, sixty six or sixty seven is like the year for spy movies in the 60s is the height of spy mania well it's because of uh thunderball in 65 mm. is the one that just completely
1: blows the doors off in terms of box office success yeah and so that's
0: a two-year window for everyone to start launching every spy property they've got right yeah i mean like i'd have to look it up but like i'm sure modesty blaze is coming out around about this time as well like it, I, i'm sure like stuff like the liquidator is all bubbling around about now so yeah <laughs>
1: the liquidator is bubbling
0: <laughs> i didn't Very even nice. i didn't do that purposely that was a that's a freebie there folks you can keep that one yeah uh and so
1: i mentioned you know frank sinatra um he owed kind of a favor to brad dexter and so appeared in this movie but i don't know that frank sinatra was fully committed to this project
0: <laughs> okay so
1: they've been shooting for a while in europe and frank left the production to perform at a rally for California's Democratic governor, Pat Brown, who was running in the 1966 gubernatorial election against Ronald Reagan. And, you know, once Sinatra had performed that concert, he decided, you know what? I don't really want to go back to Europe. Can we just, like, do the rest of my scenes, you know, perhaps in L.A. on a soundstage? Hmm. And,
0: uh, you know, they weren't necessarily the most thrilled about that. (laughs) No, I could uh, imagine they weren't particularly happy about having to move the entire production to a different uh, continent. Mm-hmm. Uh, that seems like a bit of a pivot. Yes. Not necessarily something a happy actor would be doing. I don't know how many scenes he had left to shoot. Um, So there may have just been some
1: interiors that they managed to shoot in L.A. Okay. It's very muddy. Like, the thing with the behind-the-scenes on this movie is... There is no really like definitive account written about it. I had to like go through a lot of like individual news articles about participants who worked on the movie and getting snippets here and there. Mm-hmm. So I found it very hard to nail down actual specifics as to whether they did do the interiors in LA or whether they had to talk Frank Sinatra into coming back. And I saw kind of both versions of this, re- you know, reported. But you did spend half an hour clarifying the word gubernatorial. I did. This may have been the most research time put into a movie in quite a while, just because of the fact usually you can go to AFI or Turner Classic movies mm-hmm. and they'll have like a pretty thorough breakdown that you can use as a skeleton. Yeah. This movie was just like nothing.
0: That I mean maybe that's a little another sort of note you have in, in your behind the scenes going forward, but like it, it there does seem to be an interesting legacy with this film. Yeah.
1: Oh there is. And so um I mentioned, you know, that um Brad Dexter And Frank Sinatra, they had this bond because, you know, Brad Dexter had um, saved his life. Mm -hmm. Their friendship fell apart over the course of this production. Sure. And ultimately the thing, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back was that Frank Sinatra was engaged to Mia Farrow at the time who was 30 years his junior. She was about 20. And Brad Dexter was like, dude, this is a
0: bad idea. Yeah. And Frank Sinatra was like, I'm done with you. Goodbye. Wow. It's uh, not a lot of uh, sticking with your friends there, I guess.
1: No, and uh, him and Mio Faro did get married, and they were together for
0: about two years. I wonder, because Frank Sinatra has a song called You Make Me Feel So Young. I wonder if that's where that comes from. It's entirely possible. Yeah, apparently him and
1: Faro were very close until the you know the end of his life, but the marriage didn't last that long. And Brad Dexter, uh, he was uh, off to uh, other pastures, I suppose. Well... He did it his way. That's right. So the movie was a modest success at the box office. I couldn't find actual numbers, but they did say it was profitable enough that it it no one was embarrassed sure. when this thing came out. Better than the last two, if they were flops. Yeah, he had like two legit bombs. And like this one was just kind of a modest performer. Okay. And uh, the top three for the year. Number one was The Graduate. Right there, The Graduate. You can kind of see Hollywood start to change. The early seeds of where we're going to go in the 1970s are starting. Mm -hmm. Number two was The Jungle Book. And number three was Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And a couple of final notes. This was the final film Frank Sinatra ever made with Warner Brothers. Really speaks to how good an experience he
0: had with The Naked Runner. (laughs) Well, I, I don't think you really mentioned it, but how did they solve the solution of him wanting to shoot the rest of it in L.A.? It's muddy. And
1: I was not clear after doing mm. a lot of research whether he did do that,
0: and they actually shot interiors in LA, or they convinced him to go back. Because I I had read, but I don't trust my sources that he uh, that they did the rest of stunt doubles. That's the thing. It's like I came across things like that too, but they were all from unverified sources. Mm. Interesting. Okay. Well, it's one of those ones that, again, I think you're going to explain in a minute. It's a, a complicated history, and probably that's a little bit of the reason why there isn't a storied TCM entry. The thing is, when you read about just kind of the uh, behind the scenes on this one, it wouldn't
1: surprise me at all if they had to do that and did shoot his stuff in L.A., just because it doesn't seem like the commitment level was that high. And it was kind of a rocky production just for him and something that clearly if he's walking away from Warner Brothers after this movie, he wasn't happy with this entire experience. Sure. That's fair enough. Yeah. And the final note, and this is the maybe the greatest legacy that this movie has, the gun that Frank Sinatra uses, the Mauser C96, was ultimately used a handful of years later
0: as Han Solo's blaster in Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. Now, I read this too, and I was convinced you were going to tell me that there was no verifiable sources on that one. It's verifiable, yes wow so the actual prop gun that was used for this became the prop gun that harrison ford is wielding around in the prequels in the in the original films that is correct yeah and so that marks the
1: second yeah uh, spy movie prop that has had an impact on star wars because of course we had the dippy skeleton from one of our dinosaurs that is missing that stood in for a crate dragon in a new hope and now we have han solo's blaster
0: what, we need to find one more to complete, like, the trifecta. Oof. Hmm. I, yeah. We'll stumble across it naturally, I think, at some point. There'll be one more weird spy connection between that and Star Wars. But how how funny that, like, two of our very earliest films, Ipcris File, and One of Our Dinosaurs Is Missing, is uh, they're sort of now tied together by this film. I know. Very strange, right? Hmm. Okay. I, I, I'm never going to look at that blast the same way again now. I'm going to be like, hey. That was held by the guy who sent me to sleep. (laughs) Well, I was looking at the gun in the movie and going like, that
1: looks like Han Solo's blaster. And this was before even looking up the information on it. Mm -hmm. But
0: to me, it's like, I don't know, maybe that's just a generic gun type of that era. It it is an actual gun type. It's a Mauser. It is an actual gun that existed. So I was
1: like, well, I guess they used the same type of gun. I didn't realize that this was actually a prop that was kicking around the archives for a while, then ultimately was
0: recycled. Like the Ark of the Covenant, just mm, yeah. in a big studio somewhere. Yeah. Well, I, I I find that to be utterly fascinating. It's it's that's the legacy of the film is is this gun. Yeah. Really. I think so. That and maybe the legacy of just
1: uh, maybe like just being Sidney J. Fury's other,
0: you know, big spy film. So he had no other spy works during his career. I don't. Th- think so off the top of my head at least none that
1: kind of had that like um, gravitas like the prestige mm-hmm. yeah or just like you know the fact he's working with like the biggest leading men of, the, of their time Michael Caine wasn't when he hired him to do the Ipcris file but give some time and Michael Caine is like one of the biggest stars of the era so it's like those are kind of like the two big spy films of the at least the 60s for him there may be something once you get to that <laughs> that kind of um, desert that is the 80s where he's just cranking stuff out left, right, and center. Maybe there's something in there, but uh, yeah, these are kind of the two notable ones.
0: Yeah, that's 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 fair enough, and it's, it's interesting that I I had no idea about that connection going into this, and that, that there was I obviously people mentioned it online, but I didn't. When people had said to me this was like it's got a connection to the Ipcrus file, it's kind of the same sort of thing. I I thought maybe there was nods. I wasn't prepared for just how much of this being Ipcrus file too. Sure. Yeah there literally is but let's let's get to it I mean you know the the British bees are buzzing uh, the <laughs> the spy network's uh it's, 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 it's all getting a bit haywire so uh let's let's talk about the naked runner I'm actually genuinely curious because you know, legendarily one half of this show one of the only spy movie podcasts in the whole world doesn't like one of the greatest allegedly spy movies of all time in the itqu file that's me. And then the other half of this show, Cam, loves it. Like, I, I'm pretty sure that's like in your top 10 of spy movies of all time. Oh, I don't know. It's so tough. Once you start factoring in all the Hitchcock
1: stuff and my top tier bonds, like, sure. I always find like top 10 lists impossible, but
0: uh, it, mm. I, I hold it in very high regard. Yeah, sure. And then we stumble upon this film that is, for uh, all intents and purposes, it's got a lot of similarities at the very least. For a lot of other ways, it's basically like some of the same shots are in this film. Like it really is aping off of itself. So I I think I want to hear from you first, Cam, because you adore the Ipris file. What was going into the Naked Runner like for you? (laughs) Such a weird sentence. (laughs) Um, Did you throw your clothes off in reckless abandon and just, you know, throw yourself into the Rhine? How did you feel? Did I go frolicking with the Naked Runner?
1: Um, mm. Scott, I thought I'd found love with the Ipcris file, and then I came across Naked Runner.
0: Oh my god!
1: No, I'm kidding. Uh, I did not really care oh, for this movie very. I much I had a heart attack. I, I know. I was like watching there. your like all the blood just drain from your face. This, this movie, I found incredibly frustrating, and I have a lot of good things to say about it. When we talk about likes, mm-hmm. I think C D J Fury's style is so interesting. And it is very much a case, I think, of someone who is working with not great material and perhaps a leading man that is a little checked out, but doing everything he can to make this feel visually interesting and set in a world that is just very gritty and compelling to just kind of observe. Mm-hmm. So like in a lot of ways, I appreciate what he's going for with The Naked Runner. But my biggest issue is like this is a movie about a character that has no agency whatsoever. He's basically just pulled through the course of the movie, mm-hmm. doesn't know what's going on at any point, and so you're just kind of like in this very passive position watching this character just kind of drag his butt from beginning to end. And I think like there's a lot of movies that kind of follow a similar pattern. You can look at one, not even a very good movie, Nick of Time with Johnny Depp from the 90s, where it's a very similar thing, a guy who is basically being um set up to commit an assassination or else right but the thing is that is a character who's thinking like how do i get out of this what do i have to do to survive he's like trying to problem solve on his feet as you're kind of intensifying the situation i did not get any sense of that through the movie the frank sinatra character seems to be half asleep and i just found it so unbelievably frustrating that it never felt like despite i'm sure at its core wanting to be a slow burn thriller it never felt like it was moving.
0: Yeah, I uh, I don't think I can really fault a lot of what you said there. It's, it's crazy to think about the caliber of performer you've got there because people may not know, and I haven't got a lot of foundation, but I know from other people now frank sinatra is a genuinely good actor
1: oh yeah you go back you know to like from here to eternity he won an oscar for that manchurian candidate he's fantastic he can be incredibly
0: charismatic on screen yeah and you know you we mentioned the caliber of sydney j fury Uh, he's obviously got a track record that appeals to spy movie fans Mm -hmm. and yet it doesn't come together here it it there feels like so many things that are missing it's it's a bizarre experience almost an out-of-body experience watching this film and i watched it twice in a row it's crazy that a film that purports itself in its title to be about running <laughs> has no propulsion whatsoever yeah it it, it is so um lackadaisical that it, it's basically horizontal I don't understand where they thought they were going with this one because is this Sinatra's performance here? Is this a direction? Is this another problem altogether? Is it the script? I don't know where it necessarily stumbles. Maybe we'll figure that out. But yeah, it's it's absolutely crazy that a film exists that actually makes me appreciate the Ipcress File. <laughs> is it an issue that like Frank Sinatra's
1: charisma? You know when it's focused. Mm. is just, like, incredible. And I don't mean he has to be, like, Mr. Popping-off-the-screen movie star, because this is clearly a more downbeat character, but just as a performer, he comes alive on camera, Mm -hmm. and, like, he's working with a very technical, stylistic director, Mm. and I wonder if it just doesn't play to his strengths, and maybe he just was not enjoying the experience when they're sitting there framing a camera, you know, to shoot through crystals at his face, and he's
0: going, like, come on, guys, like, what are we doing? Yeah, yeah. you've got the director and the cinematographer in the corner trying to get a lens to shoot through the handle of a briefcase to watch him shoot someone else in the distance. I mean, one of the, my issues with Ipkris is the same thing here, but we'll come to that. So maybe like for Michael Caine, he was kind of left to create his own character and find his own mannerisms and kind of direct himself in many ways. Whereas I think maybe Frank needs a stronger director to get a performance out of him. Or is it also that Michael Caine is a young, up and coming
1: talent who's hungry for something and willing to be more molded by a director on screen Mm -hmm. and is like, oh, this is a complex kind of shoot they're going for? Okay, I'll make this work. Whereas, like, Frank Sinatra, at this point, the man is a legend. He has been, you know, in how many classic movies at this point in his career? Mm. And now he's sitting there kind of standing around waiting while they as you said frame through a briefcase is he just like like come on i've got things i want to do
0: i want to go perform at this uh you know this um democratic um you know event but that's not to say that there isn't like moments of brilliance in this film even with the sort of quirky I mean, I I said Dutch angles in that episode, and I I, I never apparently taught people the meaning of the word Dutch angles when in our Epicus File episode, but you know, jaunty camera angles, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, there's a moment where um, Frank Sinatra's character is taken out to the woods by uh, Darren Nesbitt's character, Colonel Hartman, uh, as as if he's going to assassinate him, shoot him in the back, and you know. Uh, Frank Sinatra, is, it goes to vomit. He's so panicked about the situation. He vomits, and he leans forward. It's like a POV shot, and he leans forward. And then you snap to another scene, and he sits back up again. Yeah. Like, it's beautifully framed. There's, like, a, a an actual bit of, like, filmmaking going on here that they're actually trying to do something interesting with it. And there are moments like that sprinkled throughout the film. But n- none of it ever feels like it's ever stepping up to the level of Ripkiss file. And what I noted down was I wonder if Sydney, J. Fury, and his cinematographer played all the hands they wanted to play with Ipcris file. So a lot of this has just felt like revision. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Or was it that like also that they just had a better script to work from with Ipcris? Like the story there was just something that kind of drew you in. Whereas this one, they set up this whole like puppet motif, uh, pretty early on. Mm -hmm. They even mention, you know, he's a marionette being controlled by strings. At a certain point, he even goes to a puppet theater and I'm like, a little too on the nose there, Sidney J, come on. (laughs) We don't need to go quite that far. But like, if you have a lead character who is a puppet on strings Mm -hmm. and never seems to really fully realize that that's the case and try to cut the strings that's not really a story (laughs) that's not particularly compelling and the movie ends so unbelievably Uh, hilariously abruptly uh. that i was like i mean
0: that's a choice that is an all-timer choice that ending is i mean it's one of my dislikes it's so frustrating but in my head once i read about what was happening behind the scenes i actually attributed that to being they didn't have frank to shoot additional scenes possible yeah it's, I mean, it's. It's so abrupt. It feels like it isn't what's in the script. It feels like it's literally like slapping the viewer in the face in the last second, saying, all right, off you go." I mean, it's literally Frank Sinatra being like, "This was a setup." Yup. Yep. Credits. Get in the car. Okay.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh. Well, okay. <laughs> guess they, yep, right. everything's
0: okay now. I guess. <laughs> mm. Uh. Yeah. It. It is absolutely crazy. But. I suppose just like for me. I, I, I made jokes about like it making me appreciate it because file and it does a little bit. This does actually make me kind of appreciate what they were doing. with was file it because it file is this done better, but we shouldn't necessarily be just sitting here comparing the two because they are different films. Sure. They're from the same filmmaker, but they're from different screenwriters, different lead actors, different strengths, different weaknesses. So I'll take that to one side for a second. What I think the problem is for me is this film is incredibly dull. It is. It, I, it's, I hour and 40 minutes and there is a ticking clock in this film and unfortunately I felt that clock on my watch ticking the entire time. I was so conscious of time moving in this film and despite having moments like I said of brilliance to sort of shine through I, I didn't care about the plot particularly. I, didn't, I, I think Sinatra's performance didn't grab me so I didn't particularly care what happened to him. Mm-hmm. I cared more about his son. His son, the character, was more dynamic than he was. I had an issue with the son thing, though, because they established very early on,
1: he's not in any danger. And so, like, sure. yeah. if you are in the position of the Frank Sinatra character, it's better if the audience doesn't know what's going on with the kid. Sure. Because then it's like, oh, like, psychologically, you are now with him. We have that information. We know this kid is completely fine. Mm-hmm. And so then you're just, like, watching a guy be like, well, I guess my son is dead. Mm. So I better get revenge. But we're going like, well, no, we know what's going on. The kid's fine. And so it's just like, it's frustrating watching a
0: character who doesn't have the information the audience does just kind of trudge through a movie. That is, that is frustrating. And one film I noted down in is a comparison point. I know I'm, we're not comparing it. Well, I want to try and not compare it to the Ipqv's file too much. But in terms of what they're going for with the plot is Alan J. Pacula's uh, The Parallax View? Yeah. Because you've got, uh, you've got a lead who's a, a far away from everything else and he's being brought in and he's trying to take a, something down and he is sort of investigating. But the one thing that that film does well is it, you know, Alan J. Packett, is it, um, who's the lead in that film? I'm forgetting the name. Oh, Warren Beatty? Warren Beatty, thank you. He, he's, his character's investigation is throwing spanners in the works of the Parallax company. Mm. So there is, he's actually making a contribution to the story. He is changing dynamics and the flow of where it's going. Whereas Frank Sinatra's character here of, I keep thinking his name is Derek, Sam Laker, is as passive as it goes. He is literally just at the behest of everyone else in this film. And he is meant to be your superhero. He's framed as like this great guy at the beginning of the film. He wins an award for his chair design work. Like (laughs) a a guy you want to be around. And he loves nudists as well, apparently, you know, because that never comes up again. Or why he runs. He doesn't really run either. But, yeah, I I just found it incredibly dull. And I I think, like, that's one of the biggest sins a film can have is being dull. I'll take stupid and, like, badly acted any day over dull.
1: It's frustrating, too, because I think of Manchurian Candidate, which we haven't covered yet on the show. Mm -hmm. But, like, you know, that movie's about brainwashing people to become assassins. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have, like, the Lawrence Harvey character in that movie who had gone through that brainwashing. But he's someone who recognizes something's wrong. Mm-hmm. And there's like an internal struggle to that character over the course of the movie. right? And like, that's interesting. There's no sense of that with the Frank Sinatra character. Like, yes, he's unhappy to be there. Mm-hmm. But he never really knows what's going on at all like through the entire course of the movie. He's not even like making an effort to connect puzzle pieces. He's just kind of like being led from one situation to another. And there's not even that moment of like, a character that's having, like, a nervous breakdown. I like the way he played the scene where he got the information that his son, uh, you know, was quote-unquote dead. Mm. And, like, just the way he has his head down kind of in the foreground of the shot, like, you could feel kind of the weight of that. Mm-hmm. Like, you could see that Frank Sinatra was like, okay, I need to play this moment seriously. But it's not like the emotional journey of this character has any sort of, like... I feel like it ever really communicates to the audience through the rest of the journey. It's, like, individual moments, whether it is him you know, throwing up in the woods. Like, I felt that. There'd yeah. be sporadic moments where I'd go like, okay, he really nailed that moment. But as an emotional journey for a 100 and, uh, what is it, like a 100 and minutes, basically? Yeah. It just felt like very blah, which, as you said, like, that's so frustrating to have to sit through, especially when the character journey is already kind of compromised by the storytelling, mm-hmm.
0: that to also not have a performance you can connect to fully, that's really rough. Or like other things to look out for, like a great action sequence or something like that. Something you can like grab onto and be like at least we have this. I I just couldn't find anything like that particularly. But let's talk about the things that we did like. And that there are some. I have a couple. I think you've had a few more. So why don't mm-hmm. I throw to you first, Cam? What's something you really liked about The Naked Runner? There were two performances
1: in this movie I thought were fantastic. I know where you're going. Yeah. And they are Peter Vaughan as Martin Slattery. Mm-hmm. who is the british agent that basically sets up frank sinatra's character yeah there are so many scenes of him just like staring almost into the camera mm-hmm. that are so unsettling and this felt to me very ipcris like the world this character lives in felt like something pretty closely attached to like what michael kane's world was in the ipcris file and honestly he was so much more interesting to follow mm-hmm. as he was like creating these machinations to you know, basically propel um, Frank Sinatra forward, that I was like, just give me that movie. Like, give me a movie about the inner workings of this guy and how he operates in his day-to-day. Because I thought this performance was just masterful and it will stick with me. And the other performance was Darren Nesbitt as uh Colonel Hartman, mm-hmm. who is this you know, East German um agent that is collaborating with Slattery and He has that kind of, like, almost like Bond henchman-like look. He's, you know, kind of the tall, blonde, good-looking guy, but so intimidating. And you had that scene, as you mentioned earlier, where he's going to execute Frank Sinatra in the woods, like, incredibly effective there. But there's also, like, a very dark humor to him. Mm -hmm. There's a bit where um, Frank Sinatra brings up, like, uh, World War II, and he's like, oh, you know, I wasn't able to join the SS. I didn't have that good fortune. I was too young. And it's this very like dark little bit of humor, but that kind of like continues with that character. There's always this kind of like sense of like we know this guy is bad news, but we can't
0: help but be completely like drawn in by him. Well, there's a spark to him. There's almost a twinkle in Darren Nesbitt's eye. Yeah. The whole time. Like you you're almost drawn to watching him. And I think Peter Vaughn is is the same. He that the character of Martin Slattery if you told me he worked for for Major Dolby or Colonel Ross, I would completely buy it. If there was a, a file on a desk that said Ipcris on it, like I would, that feels like that's the exact same universe, and that feels like and, and that has texture, that has a richness to it that feels like a real event, a real person that has existed, and that was how espionage was being conducted in the 1960s. Everything about that felt genuine, and also quite relatable. Like I I I mean, I'm not saying I often manipulate you into assassinating people cam but i would know how to do it sure yeah and everything about the
1: world that slattery you know lives in feels mm. so like gritty and grounded and real yeah. like it feels like a character that exists in a world that is interesting and it has that's like to me the closest connectivity with the ipcris file other than shot choices yeah is that like that world feels very similar to like when you watch the ipcris file and you have michael kane going and observing people early in that movie. It's like a trashy-looking apartment. It's Mm -hmm. not glamorous. It is kind of the reality of the spy world as depicted through, you know, Sidney J. Fury's lens. And that's the world that uh, Slattery lives in. And I just kept thinking, like, give me a movie about Slattery. Give me a movie about Colonel Hartman. These are interesting characters who have a point of view and a story that seems like it would be compelling to follow, as opposed to the chair salesman who's just really
0: unhappy. Yeah, and you got to think, like I think Sidney J. Fury must have known he struck gold with Peter Vaughan because the film opens with a shot of Peter Vaughan asleep to the side of the camera and there's a whole credit sequence that plays next to him whilst he's asleep and there's music playing in the background on a vinyl record. And then the phone rings and the plot begins, basically. But Peter Vaughan's been there the entire time and you slowly see him like, wake and then react to the phone and it's all very subtly done but it's there's like a menace to him immediately you know something's a bit weird with the guy and then you just you 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 find the the, the depths that he's willing to go to to get a person he considered a friend to do a horrific thing uh, I, I, again it's just it's a wonderful character to see on screen and, and a lot of people might not know the name Peter Vaughan it might not jump out to you. But fans of the Game of Thrones TV show would know him as uh, Meister Amon from the Night's Watch. That's his sort of most recent uh, performance before he passed away in 2016. Um, but yeah, like he sort of burst back on the screen with that. But he's been in a couple of spy films we've looked at in the past as well. It's not his first time on the show. Um, I just wanted to sort of jump on because I agree to both of those. and I, I, I think they're both fantastic performers. I think uh, another character who pops up in this, another actor I should say that pops up in this. Uh, I think we actually mentioned the film already, and that's Edward Fox. Yeah, it's a smaller role, but the charisma of Edward Fox shows through in this film. Like when he's pretending to be from like the embassy, and he picks up uh, Frank Sinatra from the the police station. I guess is what it is. Like he's just got a twinkle in his eye, and you kind of want to see a bit more of him.
1: You can see the seeds planted for what he would do with like Day of the Jackal. Yeah. Like, this is clearly a guy. If you were just to watch this movie, you go, that guy could make Day of the Jackal work. He mm-hmm. has all the necessary ingredients we're looking for. And I did have to wonder as I was watching the movie and then doing the research after, and hearing about Frank Sinatra's kind of um indifference to the project in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. there's a lot of material really emphasizing Slattery and Hartman like they are given a lot of screen time mm-hmm. and I almost wonder if it was like making up for the fact that Frank Sinatra wasn't around so much so they kind of boosted up those guys roles and presence in the movie mm. I mean I have no way of knowing I'd have to see the original script and really judge it off of that but it felt like when the movie said and done it's not just the fact that like um, their characters are more dynamic I just had way more of an impression of their role throughout the story than I really did with Frank
0: Sinatra's well, that's because they had agency. They they actually were able to you know, chart the course of the story, whereas Frank, uh, Frank Sinatra is just... I mean, he's the audience sort of cipher. You could pretend to be him for the film, but I think a lot of people watching that thinking that they would be in Frank Sinatra's shoes. Instead of being like, oh, yeah, that's what I'd do, you're sitting there and going, oh, no, I would do it differently. And that's not what you want. Like, if you're watching James Bond, for instance you you know he's he's sat having dinner with Dr No and then you want him to punch the guy in the face and that's kind of what he does like he fights back whereas in this film if frank sinatra was out to dinner with Dr No he'd probably just sit there and eat the meal yeah there's never a moment where he like tries to outsmart no. the people who are manipulating him No, uh, my favorite
1: moment of like this is so checked out frank sinatra is mm-hmm. the moment where um there's like the female contact he goes to stay in the hotel with. Yeah. And she like gets changed into like a blue nighty, and it's clear, you know, there's kind of a seduction thing. He's like,
0: I'm tired, I'm going to bed. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's about where we are right now. <laughs> you keep using that excuse on me, Cam, and I don't particularly enjoy it. <laughs> the blue nighty isn't as flattering on you. <laughs> I even dressed up with a little choker like Tatiana, but it's just not an in interest to you. No, no, no. There's no love in this journey from Russia. Uh, my mouth's not big enough, clearly. Yeah. Um. But yeah, like that, that. It's it's a real it's a real shame with with Frank. But I agree in terms of those actors. I think they're all tremendous. In terms of the like, I want to highlight, and actually, you said you had a few, so I'll probably throw it back to you. I actually have only got really one more I wanted to mention, apart from those. I had those names written down as well. Is I love the premise of this film. I think the delivery is poor. But I think the premise is great. I think the script is probably poor too. It's probably based. The book is probably what's the best bit here. I would imagine. I haven't read it, but you can guys let us know if you've read the original book. Do you think it's better? Um, but yeah, like there's this whole like this side of manipulation that happens in the world of spies. Sort of this amorality of it all. This you know leaving people out in the cold. It the reality of spy work really. It's not the glossy Hollywood veneer that we show in things like bond and mission impossible that sort of stuff like that this is actually really what happens people get burnt a lot of the time i also wonder too like this was four years after the jfk assassination Mm.
1: and there was all like the theories around lee harvey oswald whether he was like a patsy for that assassination and i don't know if those conspiracy theories or that kind of like you know that kind of exploration as to what his role was had had really kicked into gear Mm. at this point point. But I know that, like, there was an appeal to kind of examining kind of the Patsy, the guy who was set up for an assassination. Sure. And it feels very, like, kind of, like, timely to tackle that kind of story. I just don't think they did it well. I kept being reminded watching this of... It's a spy movie we watched. We have not covered on the show, but we both watched it for an interview. And it was... I'm going to keep it a little vague because I don't want to give away our thoughts on it to people. But it was a Kirk Douglas movie from the 70s, I think. And, um...
0: Oh yeah. I okay. just kept
1: thinking about that movie when I was watching this, when I was comparing kind of the wow. energy level yeah. and how engaged I was with the material. Yeah. Because it really felt like those movies were just very shaggy and kind of like, ugh,
0: this is very uh, uh like this does not have it. It's it's like they've got the star there and that's what they're hoping on. But other than that, there's no like he has no yeah, Kirk Douglas makes no effort in that film. Yeah. Uh, yeah that's a great parallel because they they both have like no pace to them and both of their leads feel like they're just dragging their heels and you look at the years they're coming out
1: and the kind of the pedigree of the filmmakers and you go like this doesn't make sense why does it look like this
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) it looks just kind of like like there's there's no there's no life on screen there's no passion to it no i i agree but like it just just Going back to the like, I just like seeing the side of spy movies. We don't often get here. And I think like it's more to do with just how many of these types of spy films have been made over the years. So a lot of what we put out tends to be more towards the action side of things. But that's just law of averages of what's been created. So it's nice to have something that actually deals with the darker sides of spy work. And I think that side of the story is really fascinating. And that's why, you know ultimately, I think that there is a really great premise here it just isn't dug it is isn't fleshed out properly, and again, there's a lot of faults that we'll get to, but yeah i um i I love what this film was trying to do and there are bursts of direction, I think that are
1: impressive, you know, I like a lot of the shot choices. I like a lot of the unconventional framing, things that make me go like I'm watching kind of a boring scene, but it's shot in an interesting way, Sure. like the interrogation, for example, where you're just like staring up at both the you know both um Hartman and Laker. During a conversation, like things like that kind of kept me engaged, Mm -hmm. but the material was really leaving them out to dry. It was entirely visual imagination, but there was one sequence I thought was actually quite effective, which was that assassination, which when we actually get to it, there is like a a tense, a tenseness to it that I was like, oh, like this is actually kind of effective way they're setting it up very methodically. It's almost like a procedural moment of setting sure. up an assassination. It's not played as like super over the top Hollywood action kind of stuff. Yeah. It's kind of like a down and dirty things go wrong. He's gotta improvise. That was the kind of moment where I'm like, more
0: of this please. Like where was this kind of energy the rest of the film? Well I think the concept was they wanted to get that the assassin back. Like that that's what he did during World War Two was he was a sniper. Yeah, They wanted to get that cold-hearted energy back, and so they twisted him to the point where he gave up and became that sort of, or well, the blunt instrument, if we're going to use that analogy. So it was nice to see him actually finally become that, but you almost kind of want to have seen it earlier. Yeah. Like him having to forcibly do it somehow, like having to beat someone up or something, like channel that energy somehow. But yeah, that, that moment is is great and like he, he improvises. I was trying to figure out what he was doing with those bricks. I'm not a gun guy, so I don't really understand that. If anyone has watched the film and has listened to this, drop me a message, drop us an email, spyhardspod at gmail.com. What was going on with that? Because I'm not too sure. Yeah, I didn't really understand the brick thing either. No, I'm guessing it's to do with distances and and like, and like measuring the amount of time it takes to get. Like, I can I can judge someone's speed by how long it takes to go from one brick to the other. Yeah, as opposed to just like a straight line where you can't gauge something visually. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. That, that's, that's where I... My head took it, but like I I don't I don't work with guns, I don't know. Yeah.
1: We interrupt this program to bring you a special report.
0: Attention, spy hards diehards. Independent podcasting. Much like the spy game requires considerable resources. Whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course constructing a hidden moon base, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right, the Spyhards Patreon is the home. To
1: our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors, and The Debrief, where we activate our billion-dollar brains and predict how the spy movie news of today will shape tomorrow.
0: Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month?
1: Ho ho ho, it's time for some Christmas content on the SpyHards Patreon, and this week we are going to review the 1971 police thriller, The French Connection, directed by William Friedkin. After all, who's more jolly than Gene Hackman?
0: So accept your mission and hop in the Hellmobile today at patreon.com slash spyheart. But before Spectre agents intercept this broadcast, let's get back to the Spy Jinx. Okay Cam, we've we've laid some of them out already, but um, let's talk about dislikes, things that didn't work for us with the naked runner. Do you want to take us away? Um. The plot gets so convoluted in this Oof. movie, yeah,
1: that I literally was struggling to even understand what was going on mm-hmm. When you had scenes, for example, where um, Slattery is setting it up, so as I mentioned that scene earlier, where the blonde contact lady tries to seduce Frank Sinatra and he goes to you know bed, mm-hmm. the way they like set it up so that when he goes back there, she's going to call the police on him and get him arrested. I'm like okay why are we doing this like it just felt like they were constantly trying to come up with reasons to keep his character off balance but i didn't even understand at a certain point
0: a lot of the machinations they were doing there's several moments like that one that precedes that is the hotel itself there's this whole to and throw (laughs) in the background of like we have to have this room for some reason room 507 it has to be room 507 i don't know if it's ever explained why it has to be 507 maybe that's the one they've wiretapped uh, or was it, like, from a vantage point situation? But he's not shooting from there. I know. Yeah, I, I, maybe that was, like, something that was in the book and it was put into the script, but the context was never put into the script, so it's just sort of lost to the viewer and to us analyzing it. But, yeah, there's a lot of moments like that where you just sort of scratch your head. There's a, you know, at one point, right at the assassination, they say, oh, there's two cars coming, and then are there, why was there two cars? Uh...
1: I'm not sure about that. Also, who was like chasing after Hartman trying to kill him? No idea. (laughs) I that scene had me so confused.
0: Yeah, now you think now you mention it, I have no clue why that even happened. And these are these are moments because going back to that old Alfred Hitchcock icebox sort of theory, that's meant to be when you get home after watching a film and you stop and go, Wait, why did that happen? This was happening to me during the viewing of the film i was sitting there questioning decisions and that shouldn't be happening yeah uh there was
1: a lot of moments like that where i would sit there and go like okay hold on like i know i did not fall asleep and just wake up but like i feel like we almost like skipped over a scene or something like that Mm -hmm. it just was not connected well and i don't think it should be like well of course you don't understand the only person that would truly understand would be the slattery character because he's the mastermind But no, that's not acceptable. Like you have to have some sort of like blueprint so that we can understand where he's taking our character. If their whole goal was to have us as disoriented as Frank Sinatra, congratulations, I guess. Mm -hmm. But I looked about as happy by the end as Frank Sinatra
0: did through most of this movie. Yeah, like I, I, for instance, when there was this talk about getting the gun off of him at the airport going back to Leipzig. Yeah, I have no idea why they wanted to get the gun off him if the objective was for him to use the gun. Okay, I think here was my initial thought. Okay. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh,
1: the movie doesn't really answer this question. Was that his purpose was to smuggle the gun and that there was supposed to be a handoff, and Edward Fox was going to be the one that actually committed the murder. But then why send him in the first place? I
0: don't know. As maybe more of a courier, an but, unknown courier. But then that question is applicable to a lot of the film because they go to amazing efforts to conduct this assassination. Yeah, when quite frankly, there's two guys waiting around the corner in a car, both of them could have done it. Also, the target they're after is not the most um
1: brilliant of, com- you know, criminal masterminds or something. He's just like this kind of nerdy scientist dude that may have some information. Mm-hmm. I was like making notes, I'm like where's our born asset characters it's like can you take out this guy really quietly great done no problem as opposed to like grabbing a chair salesman who yes he served in world war ii like 20 something years ago uh-huh. but like this seems like a lot of work to go to for what seems to me like it would be actually a pretty easy target like this is not a huge public assassination this is not um you know the um day jackal Day of the Jackal or also um the one you mentioned earlier with Warren Beatty that I'm totally parallax concerned. view thank you parallax view like that is not the case with these assassinations this is a very quiet situation i didn't understand the completely convoluted you know loopholes they were running
0: through to stage this it didn't make any sense no and to make matters even worse if they couldn't already the whole reason they go into these efforts to make this sort of convoluted plan to get the assassination to happen is because the supposition is that the Russians, the Soviets, are very smart and ahead of the game. Trying to take this person they were extracting out of Belmarsh prison and get him back to the USSR. For most of this journey, they're like on trains, they're smuggling him around, they hide out on a farm for a little while. But then, to facilitate the fact that it's a shootout, they have him jump in a car in a very open area and drive Straight through it. Like, they're they're being super sneaky until it's convenient for the film for them to be like, oh, they're idiots now. Uh, Yeah. I thought it was really head-scratching. And also, like, if you're
1: going to have a situation where you want to set up, like, a Patsy, as kind of the the concept of the movie is, in theory, you want the Patsy to be in a situation where they're going to get pointed to and be like, it was that guy. Mm -hmm. Like, that's the guy who did it. Versus a very quiet... Deserted road with no one around. Like, who cares who does it at this point? Yeah, because it could have been literally anyone. There's
0: no witnesses. Yeah, there's no one around at all. It's like, it's just barren territory. And if you're going to do that, by that point, we already had trip mines. That's true. That's also true. Yeah. Could have just, just blown the car up. Not only that,
1: he shoots that car, it blows up. Mm-hmm. There are two people
0: waiting there to extract him mere steps away don't worry cam the film has ended by this point you're not meant to be asking these questions
1: no that's true and colonel hartman is one of them i believe yeah and it's like he seemed more than capable of taking out this car considering earlier in the movie we saw him take out another car with a
0: machine gun yeah There's, there's no reason why he couldn't have been on that grassy knoll i i we could sit here and pull it to pieces but basically it's a shoddy script it
1: really is, and it's enlivened only by, I think, Sidney J. Fury's style, and just like, how do I make this moment visually interesting? I'm going to tr- try everything I have in my bag of tricks to do that, mm-hmm. and then a couple performances that really leap off the screen. But even, like, there was the dramatic element also of this woman that Frank Sinatra had worked with in World War II, yeah. who got ill in the hills, as I noted, um, and he thought she died. Mm. And is brought back into his life. This should feel like such a dramatic reveal of having her back in this, you know, this encounter, this kind of reunion
0: between the two. And like, well, where does that character even go? It's actually uh, the the character's name is uh, Karen jacivius. It's actually her last uh, acting role. Is it really Nadia mm. Gray? Okay, yeah. Um, but no, like that's there's this whole setup. There's this emotional meeting in a in a clock shop, a clockmaker shop, or a watchmaker shop. Uh, and this long-lost love. They talk about how Frank Sinatra's wife had died years ago, so they make a point of saying he's single, and it's okay for him to mingle, uh, but you never see any follow-up.
1: No, and there's not a lot of sparks on screen also when you put these two together in a, in a moment. um, I think my favorite thing that she contributed is really the scene where he is being held by Hartman, mm. and she does the like slow walk into the room, and just the yeah. uh, the sound of her you know high heels on the ground walking and i thought was very effective and they have her off in the background getting closer and closer in frame again really well shot moment
0: but in terms of dramatic impact of that character not a lot going on i did like that interrogation scene i think that was quite good like oh, it, yeah it, seeing um frank sinatra up against it, having to sort of get his story taken apart by someone who clearly knows a lot more than him is is a good bit of sort of Investigative work. Uh, the, the thing I wanted to point out, not point out, we've already kind of said it, but I, I think Frank Sinatra was just miscast. He's, I think, a little too old because mm-hmm. he was about yeah. 50 at the
1: time. Sure. And they're setting up that he was someone in World War II. So, like, you take off 20 years, he's 30. That's fine. But, like, Frank Sinatra at 50 is a Frank Sinatra who has lived, you know, 50 years of Frank Sinatra's life. His liver is 80. That's right, yeah. Like, this man has lived many Mm. lifetimes. And so I just felt like he seems a little too old for someone who just was out of the war for 20 years. And maybe that's the case for a lot of the cast, actually, because you also have, like, uh, Vaughn... uh, Or, sorry, Martin Slattery does not look like a uh, spring chicken himself, either. But uh, I just felt like maybe you want someone who seems a little more upwardly mobile... In this movie as a potential assassin Mm. than Frank Sinatra, who, at least in this movie, doesn't seem to have a lot of energy and conveys a very tired, older presence. And, like, the thing is, I've seen Frank Sinatra in many musicals. The man is a virtuoso in, like, a dance scene or a musical moment in a really well-staged musical. But, like, Mm. here, I'm sure that he's trying to get inside of someone who's just kind of broken down to a certain
0: degree, but, like... It just, it just feels like it just slows the movie down. I mean, you cast someone slightly younger, slightly more virile, like I don't know Rod Taylor around this time. I'm, I'm keeping it to the liquidator because apparently I love that film. But just someone that, like you know, a, a, not an action man, but like can do sort of physicality. It just feels more genuine. Like this, this feels like a very proto version of Taken yeah you've got the old man coming back out of back into action one last time that sort of thing I don't know it you know we could talk about we've spoken about the ending being terrible uh, whether that's to do with editing lack of having you know product to work with in the editing bay or maybe that's just how the book ends like it's just oh that's it we're done i don't I don't know but like i I'm sort of i think for me we've sort of tackled my dislikes already. Yeah, that kind of like sums up just going through
1: like the script issues, yeah. the Frank Sinatra casting and performance, just the, the pace issues. It just feels like a movie that like Sidney J. Fury and you know his cinematographer were so locked in on the visual design of the movie and kind of creating the world of the movie that when it came to actual storytelling, it just did not connect. And maybe they just didn't have particularly strong material to work
0: with in the first place. Yeah, that's, that, that's most likely it. It's a real shame because on paper, this should have been quite an interesting film.
1: Yeah, on paper, this should be like a no-brainer. When I look at a movie like Suddenly, the one I mentioned earlier with mm-hmm. Frank Sinatra, it's kind of like the B movie version of this. Like This is, a, I think, like an A-level movie that just falls apart yeah but like production wise it's pretty top tier whereas like suddenly was a little more of a b movie, but it had so much more tension. it was also about setting up someone to commit an assassination they didn't want to commit mm-hmm. and you know it's just kind of like a down and dirty single location almost movie it's like set in a house, and I just remember enjoying that movie so much
0: more i I completely buy it i um it, this just feels like a misfire. it's a really unfortunate one when you just you know what ingredients they used. That's that's it, really. Um, but before we get to the knock list, I've got to ask about any final notes. Can we have anything for us? I had a big one, actually, oh. which is
1: a Sidney J. Fury trademark in this movie when it comes to his spy films. And look, there's a ton in here. We're framing shots with like red chairs between the actors. Like There's all sorts of crazy stuff visually going on. Mm-hmm. But there is a moment that made me smile really wide, which is... There is a like pass off with like important intel of two guys standing at a field watching a marching band. And I was immediately transported back to Major Dalby, just loving it up
0: at a, uh, you know, marching band performance in a park. I knew you were going to mention that marching band. One of my questions at the end was going to be, what is it with spies meeting at weird concerts? Right. That seems to be a thing. It's a Sydney J. Furyism, I think.
1: I think so too. And another thing I actually enjoyed about the movie, it's mm-hmm. a very small performance, but there's an actor who plays basically a Peter Laurie type yeah, who shows up and he's the one that uh, talks to Frank Sinatra about the son being kidnapped. And he says it in this very just like, it's almost like this very like mild mannered voice. It's not particularly threatening, but because it's so mild mannered, it
0: becomes threatening. That's the Peter Laurie special right there, isn't it? Like he has that voice; it's just like unnerving. Yeah, yeah. Um, two things I want to bring up towards the end. One's more of a note, and then more of a question afterwards. It was nice to see a little bit of Copenhagen. Um, I'm not sure if they actually shot in Tivoli Gardens. It looked like they did. I think they did. Yeah. Because I've been there, and Tivoli is lovely. So it was nice to see that. Because we recently spoke about Matt Helm going to Copenhagen, and he never once was went there. And I like that this movie had sort of an unglamorous glamour to it.
1: Mm-hmm. It went to famous locations, but it did not try to make them look like a Bond movie. It kind of captured that
0: working class aesthetic that Sidney J. Ferry seems to like. No, but you did, um, and this is a real deep cut here, but a little bit of a Bond connection for everyone. Uh, you see uh, Frank Sinatra's house at the start of the film. He's living in like a high rise apartment that looks over the River Thames. Yeah. Um, and I was looking at him in that apartment. It's like, I've seen it before. Where have I seen that apartment before? And, and it's a pretty famous building, and you, you and I have actually walked next to it in our little London travels, funnily enough. We didn't know we were doing the uh, Naked Runner tour of London. but uh, <laughs> Luckily, we didn't wear clothes that day, so at least we were dressed. That's right. Who hmm. knew, right? We chose wisely. I couldn't figure out why for a little while, and then it struck me. Have you ever seen the TV show Secret Diary of a Cool Girl? Uh, No, I haven't. Okay, it's based on a book, uh, I think a series of books, with uh, Billy Piper. But on a couple of episodes, Colin Salmon stops by as a high-ranking MP in the British Parliament. And he is living in the exact same room, that same house. They shot it in the same place. And I was like, huh, oh, that's interesting. why did my memory remember that? But like, I, I went and found a shot and put it next to each other. And that's, uh, yeah, bang on. Oh, wow. What an odd connection between the secret life of a call girl and the naked runner. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> a lot of naked activities there, I suppose. Ooh, lot, fair enough. A lot, yeah. stuff, uh, a lot of stuff being very, very breezy.
1: Um, another note I had was at one point, Frank Sinatra meets with that blonde contact. Mm-hmm. And she sees him and says, your picture didn't do you justice. And I was like, how bad was that photo? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I wish old blue eyes would go back. Oh god. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh my god, like <laughs> I really don't come like on. the way you look tonight. Yeah. Wow. I wish you should I wish you were a stranger in the night. Yeah. Please don't come fly with me. <laughs> you make me feel so old. <laughs> Love's not been good to me. I'm out. I'm done. <laughs> I can okay. keep going. Okay. Um, I, I did it my way. Uh, the last note I've got is more of a question. And we've recently seen some interesting uh, vocations for our spies and assassins in their real life. Recently, we had uh, Dr. Jonathan Hemlock, uh, who is an art appraiser and teacher, turned assassin in mm. uh, the Iger Sanction, but is chair designer turned assassin officially our weirdest so far it kind of is yeah like this one did jump
1: out to me It's very strange so i think that one may um and it's funny because there's a movie on our list to cover in the future called the chairman and uh
0: it's not this movie <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah he should be the chairman <laughs> shouldn't he he should be he should yeah yeah well cam the time has finally come let's dance the chattanooga choo-choo and talk about the Naked Brunner. Is it making the knock list? And the blank look on your face says to me, you don't remember that line from the film. <laughs> no, I do remember the line, actually. <laughs> it just um, no-solved me there. Thanks, thanks everyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: no. Uh, didn't we talk about the Chattanooga choo-choo when we did um, the Great
0: Locomotive Chase as well? I mean, it, it's, it's a dance from wartime, but yeah. I think the Great Locomotive Chase is Civil War, so that's pre-World Wars. I feel like that one actually had a Chattanooga choo-choo, though to the google mobile i think uh cam so I've, I've googled and i've come back and i think what i can say is chattanooga was a place that was mentioned in the great locomotive chase okay fair enough the song the chattanooga choo-choo and dance and the film uh are all from 1941 so it's a world war ii thing basically that's uh, what the, this film inferred so uh, okay Slight diversion there, folks, but I hope you enjoyed uh, the Chattanooga choo-choo. I actually don't know what it Rick. is. I kind of want to see what the dance is. Is it like the cha-cha slide? I have no idea what that is either. But you don't know what the cha-cha slide is? No. No, I'm old, but I'm not that old, I guess. Okay, apparently. Apparently. But Okay, so The Naked Runner, what do you think? No, this isn't making the knock list.
1: Um, I, I wanted to like love this movie when I saw Sidney J. Fury directed it. Mm-hmm. And I've liked Frank Sinatra and a lot of other things, but oh boy, this one's just, it's so frustrating. This is one of the most frustrating movies I've watched for this
0: podcast in quite some time. It, it wasn't so much, it was quite frustrating for me too. I don't have that sort of uh, built-in love for Sidney J. Fury that you do because of the Ipqus file. So for me, learning that he was part of this, I, I think I still went in with my guard up a bit more than you did. Mm. but like knowing that, I mean, I still voted yes for the Ipqus file making the knocklist. I can recognize quality when it exists. It just didn't work for me necessarily, but I just felt like there was such a, it was such a waste. There was so much left on the page, on the screen. There's, so much more could have been done with this film in different hands, maybe still with Cynthia Joe Fury, different maybe different script writer, different lead actor. But uh, yeah, I, I, I understand what you mean. Yeah. It was just a kind of a bummer one where, you know, when I saw that one on
1: our master list, I'm like, oh, cool. Frank Sinatra spy film. What could this be? This was not what I expected to sit through. And I don't mean because it wasn't delivering a premise I expected. Just when it came to the overall product, I was like, boy, this
0: is, this is not up to snuff. Okay. So that's one no from Cam. I still get a vote, of course, but I think it's pretty simple. It's a no from me too. There are bits of this film that work. We've called it out performances. There's a few shots here and there. The premise is pretty solid, but the delivery is such a mess. It's so flat. There's just it's an hour and forty minutes of you just sort of watching it as if it were a documentary. You don't really get invested with the characters. You honestly don't care what happens if the assassination helps or not happens or not by the end, and you know that the kid's alive as Cam pointed out. So there's no tension from that either. And so you're just left with this sort of shrug of an ending that's a ripcord basically out of nowhere anyway, and then you cut to credits. It's just a a crazy set of choices that led to this point. And in another world, another parallel universe, this could have been, I think, quite a good film. Yeah,
1: yeah, who knows, right? Like Mm -hmm. alternate universe, sure. And
0: maybe in that world, uh, The Naked Runner is available to watch for people. Yeah, well, don't worry, folks, it is on YouTube. But yeah, it's a no from me as well and as such the naked runner is not making the knocklist the dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified now can before i hit you with the usual question i do have a special announcement because later this week we have an extra special spy master interview coming your way for all of you 60s spy tv fans out there joining us on friday this week is none other An Agent 99 herself, Miss Barbara Felden, she's on to talk to us about her new book, Getting Smarter, a memoir along with some wonderful memories of working on Get Smart plus uh, some stories of Dean Martin and the man from UNCLE. Plenty to enjoy coming to the podcast feed this Friday. But Cam, over to you. What are we talking about next week?
1: Christmas is basically around the corner at the time of recording this. And so every year we celebrate with a Christmas movie. And so in the past, we talked about Honor Majesty's Secret Service. We talked about the package and this year we're going to kick off a franchise. We're going to look at the 2010 Bruce Willis film, Red, which yes,
0: in case you've forgotten is set at Christmas. Yeah, and of course, we also tackled the longest good night a few years ago as well. So we're keeping that tradition going. A festive tradition here on SpyHards are looking at some festive... Is it festbienage? Ooh, I like that. Yeah, let's stick with that. Festbienage. I'll, I'll be uh, using that on social media. So yeah, your mission, folks, should you choose to accept it, is to join us next week as we ring in Christmas 2023 style with Red. Retired and extremely dangerous. From 20. 20- 10 and if uh you like what you heard on the show please consider leaving us a five star review on apple podcasts and becoming a spy hard die hard and now Vinny, this week's uh, spy hard die hard is now officially the naked runner i hope you enjoy that code name Vinny, and uh, get your code name by leaving us a five star review on apple podcasts and if you like what you heard on this episode please consider supporting us over on our patreon page there's uh, a bunch of different entry levels where you can show your love for spyhards and over 50 bonus episodes available check it out patreon.com slash spyhards and don't forget to follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards that's s-p-y-h-a-r-d-s on facebook twitter instagram and even tiktok now but until next week folks laker has left ChromaDecker.